0: Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller and I'm honorary guest Phoebe McIndoo. Hello, honorary guest. So <laughs> great to have you. Our guest co-host, I'd say.
1: Pleasure to be here and I'm excited for this episode in particular.
0: Yeah, in particular. Ooh, I mean I I love this guest. We've had this guest on before many moons ago. We've worked with him at Blinkist quite a bit over the years. We joke and say he's the coach of coaches. His specialty is helping people unlock their greatness, which mm. maybe sounds a little cheesy, but I think once you start to get close to this guest's work, you understand why that isn't cheesy and it's just
1: true. Mm.
0: Um, so to not bury the lead anymore, today's guest is Michael Bungay Stanier.
1: Um Caitlin, what do you sort of what stood out for you about your interview with him, with Michael? Well, there are a lot of things.
0: Um, He has this concept that you'll hear of the BPR, which stands for the best possible relationship. Because the book that we talk about today is called How to Work with Almost Anyone. And the whole premise is that you can work with almost anyone, but you have to have some kind of plan around how to do that. And it is possible to get to the best working relationship you have if you're both committed to being in it together. And I loved what he said about how... What you're doing is you're trying to create a best possible relationship with someone, whether it's a coworker Mm -hmm. or a spouse or your boss, is you're trying to figure out what that best combination of safety and bravery is. Mm. He talks about how psychological safety is really important, but he's had plenty of relationships, interactions where there's plenty of psychological safety. But he's also kind of bored
1: mm. and
0: not much is going on. So you're looking for that that dance of safety and bravery. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. I That stood out for me as well. The you dance. too. Yeah, I loved that. But I, I think particularly for me was this idea that you can apply what he's talking about to any relationship, because I must say, when I first looked at the book title, I, I always feel a bit intimidated by books that are about work mm. relationships with mm-hmm. your kind of your, your colleagues. And actually, when I listened to the entire episode, I was just mapping it onto my romantic relationships and my relationships with friends. And he's, he uses this word vital. How can mm. you make your relationships more vital? And for yeah. me... That that made me think, yes, that's what that is what you want, to feel alive in your relationships and to feel that you're both growing together.
0: Oh, that was a really nice tie-in to I think that's it. That word vital, that is the mixture of safety and bravery. And that's what creates the vitality. Well, okay. Beautiful, wonderful. <laughs> Let's just get into it. Let's and listen. Phoebe and I will be back at the end. By the way, Ben is fine. Don't worry about Ben. Um, He's just on vacation. Good for him. Um, But we're here and we're going to play this wonderful interview with Michael Bungay-Stanier for you right now. And we'll be back after that at the bookend. See you there. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining me today.
2: Caitlin, thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation.
0: (laughs) Always a delight to get to talk with you. All right. So how do you like to introduce yourself?
2: I think of myself as a writer and a creator. My, my full name is Michael Bungaystania. I started calling myself MBS like on social media because Michael Stanya is quite a mouthful. But now people think I run Saudi Arabia in my spare time, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not that MBS. So look, I'm a writer and uh, a creator and a teacher. And I help people fundamentally unlock their own greatness and unlock the greatness of others.
0: Lovely. All right. Well, I'm glad I got the right MBS. Um, <laughs>
2: and we're here today then
0: to talk about your new book, which is called How to Work with Almost Anyone. And I read it. I really
2: enjoyed it. It felt very, very true to you. What When, when you say very true to me, what does that mean?
0: It is very sense-making, actionable content told with warmth And voice and a lot of memorable metaphor that makes (laughs) it a a genuinely nice read. So it's useful, actionable advice for usually leaders and coaches told in a way that feels storyful and, and really warm.
2: I do like a good metaphor, I have to say. <laughs> so, you and me both. <laughs> I'm glad you gave a shout out to all the kind of the, the metaphors and the slightly quirky <laughs> entrance ways into the kind of the teaching points I like to make.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I enjoyed about it. I um, I never get bored when I'm reading your books because I'm like, ooh, where are we going with this? I'm, I'm excited to see where, where we're going next. But the first place we go in, in this book is the BPR, which stands for Best Possible Relationship. And... Mm. That can be with coworkers. it can be with your boss, it can be, I suppose, easily outside of a work context. And you have three qualities of BPR, which are safe, vital, and repairable. Can you talk to me a little bit about those three qualities?
2: Sure. You know, the starting point is to say our working relationships are so crucial to our success and our happiness. And as you say, those working relationships can be the team that you lead, the team that you're part of, people you're collaborating with, uh, key customers, key clients, key vendors. There are all sorts of humans that you need to get work done through that are your key working relationships. And when it's good, it's very, very good. And when it's bad, it's pretty bad. Um, But most of the time we cross our fingers and we hope that these working relationships are going to work. And this is a book. Designed to encourage people to play a more active role. Not every working relationship is going to be brilliant, but I think almost every working relationship can be better. So, how do you build the best possible relationship? You don't just make the really good ones even better and even stronger and even more long lasting. And you don't make the kind of the the average ones a little bit more magical, although you, you do that as well. You also make the ones that are really hard, more bearable, more workable, good enough. So that's what we're dealing with. And you're right, I think there are three characteristics to that. BPRs that are safe and vital and repairable.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's how to work with almost anyone. Mm-hmm. Are there um, are there situations or personality types for which this work just is not doable?
2: Part of what I love about this book is how good the title is. <laughs> yeah Um, because everybody laughs (laughs) and everybody goes, yeah, I I get the almost, because almost Mm. everybody can kind of conjure that person where you're like, ah, that person. Mm. It's never going to happen with that person. Mm -hmm. And there's all sorts of reasons why that might be the case. You know, it could be that you've got a psychopath that you're working with. They say that psychopaths are 1% of the general population, but in senior levels and organisations, they're more greatly represented because actually... That kind of, I'm going to get stuff done, I'm going to get my own way, I don't care about people, actually Uh can be a really successful way of climbing the corporate ladder. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. But it could be all sorts of reasons why for you and for them and for this context and this moment and your different working styles where you're like, this is just never going to work. Mm. But conjure that almost person or maybe people for you and then realize that that leaves everybody else. And so rather than focusing on the people that you're not going to be able to build the best possible relationship with, I'm more interested in the ones where you're like, well, actually I've kind of written that relationship off, but maybe, maybe that is something that I can make more safe or more vital or more repairable. Maybe that is something where I go, I, I have to work with this person. So let me give me the best shot at turning it into the best possible version of that So even if it's not brilliant, it's good enough.
0: All right. So then when we're talking about the BPR, best possible relationship, those are safe, which I feel like that's, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I think that we have a pretty good understanding of that, of what safe can mean. Vital is a little bit more, I I think requires a little bit more nuance. Would you talk about vital a little, please?
2: Sure, because you're right. We've talked about psychological safety through the work of Amy Edmondson and the like and the work of Google and Project Oxygen Mm -hmm. and Project Aristotle. It's just much better understood that psychological safety is a thing.
0: Yeah,
2: I think it's fair to say that it's also got a bit vague as to what we're even talking about with psychological safety because it's become a bit of a catch-all phrase. But you're right. I think in general people go, look, psychological safety is removing the fear so that you can say... What you want to say, and you can show up in a way you want to show up without fearing repercussion, just based on that. Yeah, vital. You know, vital has two meanings. It's both essential, and it's also enlivening. And I love both of those meanings. But I want to dig into the enlivening side of it. And the phrase that I think captures this and balances psychological safety out nicely is psychological bravery. So this is a willingness to take risks, push, challenge, step out to the edge, have adventures, take risks. Because I know that I want psychological safety, but I don't just want psychological safety. I've had those relationships and some of them have been a bit boring. I felt perfectly safe, but I haven't felt alive. <laughs> I haven't felt challenged. I haven't felt like I'm growing. I mm. felt a little stifled to be honest. So As you're building this best possible relationship, with whoever that other person is, you're trying to figure out what that best combination and dance between safety and bravery might be.
0: The dance between safety and bravery, I like that a lot. Okay, so I feel like we have a better understanding of vital. Repairable, I was Mm. really interested in, and you make this really nice distinction between a relationship that is in disrepair being cracked versus being dented. I wondered if you could speak about that a little.
2: You know, in writing this book, I did a lot of, I call it secondary research. So reading people who write about relationships. So in my world, I think of people like Esther Perel and Terry Real, John Gottman and Dan Siegel and... These are people who have thought a lot about what it takes for relationships to last and to thrive. And it's really clear that one of the key elements is do people repair it? Mm. (laughs) Is it repairable? Uh, Mm. Is there a commitment to repair it? And it's also really clear that not many of us are good at repairing. Lots of us kind of give it up, go, ah, see. And I think in our working lives, things get dented or cracked all the time. You know, sometimes it it gets dented from the outside. Some outside force comes in and kind of disrupts things. Sometimes it gets cracked from the inside. Something's happening between the two of you. But whether you want to call it dented or cracked or bent or broken or going off the rails, it will happen to your key working relationships. It is just the nature of the world. So how do you, first of all, recognize, you know, just admit... The honeymoon period will be over at some stage. And secondly, come back to say, what does it mean for us to get better and more active at actually fixing this working relationship? There's a degree to which they self heal. Like, you know, you work with somebody, there's some disruption, but you know, you've got work to do, time moves on, and you've got a bad memory, and you kind of get back close to where you were before, mm-hmm. but never quite back to where you were before. There's something lost. Mm. And when you actively repair it rather than just hoping it will self-heal, there's a chance for that relationship not just to get back to where it was but to actually go a little deeper, a little more solid, and a little more trustworthy because you've done the work, the two of you, to make this better.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's the same with physical injuries, <laughs>
2: Right. I hadn't ever thought of it like that, but that is, oh. I, I'm going to just steal that immediately because I'm now a man in my mid fifties and mm. I've got all these injuries accumulated from, you know, being a stupid young man running around and falling off things or falling over things. Most of which I didn't. Actively treat. I just went. Mm. Oh, you know what? It'll get better. Yeah. Now I'm like, okay, if I get injured, I go and see a physical therapist or somebody to actively try and get me healthy again because it's taken me a long time to get there. But I've learned actively manage the injury rather than just wait and hope things get better.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the Keystone conversation, which mm-hmm. I guess is your way into ensuring that you can create a BPR. Where did the Keystone Conversation come from for you? How did that sort of evolve into being? And how did you select these five questions that make Mm -hmm. up the Keystone Conversation?
2: The the essence of of the Keystone Conversation is have a conversation about how you work together before you jump into what you're working on. Mm -hmm. And if people are going to just take one idea away from this conversation or from the book, if they pick it up or or from wherever it would be this, which is checking with how you're going to work together before you plunge into the work, as tempting as it is to plunge into the work.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I first learned about this 30 years ago, I would say. A teacher called Peter Block, who for me is one of the great mentors in this space of how power works, how accountability works, how encouraging people to take responsibility for their own freedom works, which is kind of the essence of the work I try and do in, in organizations and beyond. He talked about something called social contracting. Ah, and yeah. I really like this idea. I like the the contract idea because it means it's an exchange of value, but that's where the seed got planted. And I've been practicing this and teaching this and refining this for those 30 years. As I hire people for the companies that I founded, as I work with people, as I try and set up successful working relationships with clients that I'm working with. I've been testing and trying out different questions and different ways of going, let's talk about how we work together before we start working together. And so writing this book, the catalyst actually became something very personal rather than work, which was that my, my dad was dying And I was living at home with my dad and my mum. And they had been a very successful couple for 55 years. You know, very supportive, very loving, very in tune with each other. It was pretty cool. And um, dad had contracted a terminal lung disease. He'd somehow not died in the hospital, which is where we all thought he was going to die because he came pretty close. But he got to come home and he ended up having two, or three really good months living at home. But when he came home, the dynamic of how mum and dad operated had really changed because no longer were they equal partners and sharing the chores and doing the things that they've done for 50 years together. Dad was mostly limited around a bed with oxygen and mum was the main caregiver. And they both got a bit snippy with each other. Um, and I was living in the house with them and, just didn't want that to be the way this ended, which is under stress, sad, angry, that showed up with this kind of slight fractiousness between the two of them. So in a, (laughs) a moment of madness slash bravery, I said, let's me facilitate a conversation between the two of you about how you want to be in the time you have left together. Wow. In a way that completes this relationship in the best possible way and does its best to maneuver around all the feelings, the sadness and the anger and the fear that was there for both of them and for me as well. And so my parents were like, (laughs) what is this madness? I just had like Mm. a terrible idea. They couldn't have been less enthusiastic about it. Um, But, you know, I'm pretty good at nagging and being persistent. So um, we had that conversation They both did brilliantly and didn't even really matter what got said in the end. What got communicated was they were both really committed to trying to make this the best ending possible. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that I'm really proud of. I think of the various things I've done in my life, doing that was one of the great things.
0: Thank you for telling that story. I'm Sorry, I'm a little emotional. My dad was just uh, diagnosed with Parkinson's in December oh. and I've been noticing a lot of the same kind of dynamics going between my parents and it's it's really hard to watch as an adult child, you know? Right. Um, and it's it's even harder to know what your place is to help them and if they'll allow you to help them with their communication. It's, it must have been a really big, tough thing to do, so I salute you for that.
2: Yeah, I mean, and we're not a family that does touchy-feely conversations around yeah. in the dinner table. This wasn't yeah. part of our normal process. This was me, the slightly odd eldest son, coming back going, I think I've got a process. And <laughs> going, This just confirms that we have no idea where you came from. You are an <laughs> alien child to us, but mm-hmm. sure, we'll give it a shot.
0: Oh, I love that they were open-minded enough to, to give it a shot.
2: Yeah, they were very brave. It was a hard thing to do and they both were so um, reluctantly up for it.
0: I like that, reluctantly up for it. I think that that is a place that you can absolutely start from. There just has to be mm. enough buy-in to start somewhere. So so the Keystone conversation came from that with two reluctantly yes. up for it uh, participants and a facilitator in you. So... How do you start the conversation with two people who are are really up for it or reluctantly up for it?
2: Well, this is perhaps the the great call to action Mm. in this book, which is be the person who starts this (laughs) Mm. because everyone's kind of waiting for this to happen. But as somebody once said to me, nobody likes to be the first person to say hello. Everybody likes to be greeted. So you can get this started by saying something really obvious, which is I I want this to be the best working relationship it can be. Could we have a chat about how to do that? So you're showing up the best you can be and I'm showing up the best I can be and we're showing up the best I can be. What do you think? So it's this kind of some version of that, which is like, can we have this conversation?
0: Mm -hmm.
2: I think it's helpful to do a little preparation for the conversation. You know, The book is a process. It's a toolkit to help you prepare for this conversation. So there are five questions that I suggest you could talk through as part of your keystone conversation. And each question has three exercises to help you, if you want to, deepen your insight and language and nuance and concreteness about how you talk about yourself. But I just want to say, look, People have permission to like not buy the book, not worry about the five questions, just go, you've already got the big idea. Sit mm-hmm. down with somebody, and go, can we talk about how to work best together before we get into the what of the work?
0: I did want to drill down into just that that first amplify question, actually. Yeah, you call it the amplify question. What is your best?
2: Yeah. Yeah, there's a approach to understanding change
0: mm-hmm.
2: where you rather than focusing on what's broken and not working you try and figure out how to amplify what is working. Mm -hmm. So it goes by um, different approaches, but things like appreciative inquiry or positive deviance or positive psychology or strengths-based change, you know, all of this is around how do we figure out what's good and how do we play to the strengths? So when I was trying to find the right question for this, I didn't want to say, what are you good at? I didn't want to say, what are your strengths? You know, lots of people have done Strengths Finder and they've got their five top strengths, but personally, I can never remember mine. And even when people tell me their five, I'm like, I'm not quite sure what to do with that. I didn't really want to hear just what their values were. I wanted to understand when did they shine and when did they flow? Hmm. That's the essence of this question. When do you shine? When do you flow? So flow, you might know from the work of the Hungarian psychologist Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi the idea of like when you're in that moment and you've got the right type of work that is both, you know, a bit how to do it, but it's also stretching you and time speeds up and slows down and you're like, this is it. This is the work I signed up for. And Shine is that kind of external piece where you look at somebody and you can see them in their place with their eyes lit up, just going that, whatever that is, that's the thing. So you can talk about what's your best both in the the work that you do and how you do it, the people and how you work with people and relationships and what that does and what that means to be at your best. And it can also be about the essential qualities of who you are. You know, Mm -hmm. what are those kind of core attributes you've got that make you show up to have work that has most meaning and most impact. And so you're looking for an exchange there. You're like, Caitlin, you tell me what's your best. I'll tell you what's my best. And A, we have this (laughs) high endorphin moment where we're both talking about peak moments and peak experiences and the best possible version of who you are. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing that in the other person. And one of the things that happens is you both go, you know what, Uh, whatever this is, we want more of this in the way Mm -hmm. that you and I work together. So Mm -hmm. that's really helpful.
0: So... We've touched on the first question and the last question is the repair question, how will you fix it when things go wrong? How do you start that sort of theoretical conversation with a conversation yeah. partner? It's even beyond me a little bit. I was trying to imagine myself being in that conversation and I felt a little unsure. So yeah, I guess just let's talk about the repair question a little bit.
2: Well, let me ask you, because mm-hmm. I think the power of the question is and all of these questions actually is in the short term, the answers you get, but in the longer term, the fact that you have given each other permission to keep talking about the health of the relationship.
0: Hmm.
2: So it's as much about what you're now allowed to keep talking about that mm-hmm. this keystone conversation unlocks. But if I was to ask you, Caitlin, so you know when you think back on relationships that you've committed to and you've tried to make better... You know, how do you fix relationships? How do you go about doing that?
0: Well, I mean, it it starts with having a conversation about it. Or even before then, it starts usually with me trying to think about what went wrong here, what was my part in it, and how can I talk to this person about it? And if we can start off that conversation, I think the most important thing for me to know is... Does the person on the other side of the table from me trust that my intentions are good? That's the most important thing to me. Because if you don't have that, the assumption of good grace and wanting the best for each other, then I don't know that there's anywhere to start. So, yeah, that was a little bit of a fuzzy answer. But I guess it starts with the conversation and the assumption of goodwill and good intent on both sides.
2: Yeah, but not really a fuzzy answer. Like that's now, see how this is really helpful. Because yeah. I can now say something similar, and I think there are some specific you can say. Look, I think there's probably three things that can be helpful in terms of repairing and initiating repair. One is speaking up when you've been hurt,
0: because
2: hmm. um, often you get hurt and you kind of retreat a little bit. And you, at least I've done this. So I've kind of been hurt, but I'm like, I'll just <laughs> nurture yeah. this wound in the darkness and in <laughs> silence. Um, yep. Second is noticing where you may have hurt.
0: Hmm.
2: As the person who typically has the most power and status in the companies I've started, it's harder for people to say to me, you screwed up, than yeah. it is for me to say to them, you screwed up. Mm-hmm. So I have to be curious about and try and notice if something's a bit off. Yeah. Um, so what I try and bring is like, hey, I'm just noticing this. <laughs> is there anything here? And one of the questions I often ask, is, is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said
0: mm.
2: as a way of holding space for the inarticulate and the fragile and the delicate and the not barely sure it's even there to come forth? Yeah. The third tactic is just to be the person who's good at saying sorry and not doing that kind of weasel sorry where they're like, I'm sorry you felt that way, which, you know, that's not an apology. That's just an insult. Yeah, nobody wants a weasel apology. When you
0: make that space for is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't been said, in your experience, do you find that people do come forward?
2: I find that the more often I ask it,
0: the Mm. easier it
2: becomes for people.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So literally uh, six weeks ago, somebody on my team kind of sat me down over a Zoom call and said, Michael, there's something that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said. (laughs) And I was thrilled when this happened because it was using language that was a signal to both of us that this was a serious conversation
0: Mm.
2: and that it was important to this person.
0: Yeah.
2: And also that it kind of told me how I should react, which was be open And listen and try not to be too reactive or too defensive. It kind of set me up to try and show up in the best possible way around that. So it doesn't always get taken up on. Like sometimes the answer is no, there's nothing that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said. But, um, in the book, after you have the keystone conversation, there's a section on maintenance. Because mm. unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not sure, this isn't a one and done thing. It's not like you have the keystone conversation and you like, that's great, we're now set for the rest of eternity on how we work together. And the three kind of mantras of the maintenance section is adjust often. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of keep checking in and making a nudge here and a nudge there to make it better. Adjust always, repair often, and reset as needed. So mm-hmm. there are times where you're like, you know what, we need to do a reboot here or we need to stop this because it's not working anymore. That happens as well. But this idea that when you keep checking in, not every single conversation, but regularly, where you go anything anything outstanding, anything that needs to be said that hasn't yet been said, you just keep giving permission for yeah. the quiet stuff to keep showing up.
0: Yeah, I really like that. It's it's like you're kind of subliminally implanting the right language to have the hard conversation. That makes a lot of sense. What's the the most important thing that you'd like people to know about maintaining the best possible relationship?
2: The overall hope I have for this book is that people just keep checking in regularly on the health of their working relationships to give them the best opportunity for those relationships to be the best possible version of those relationships. And just like in all relationships, this stuff takes ongoing work. You can't Mm -hmm. be oblivious to it. You can't hope that it all gets solved by doing stuff rather than occasionally stopping and looking each other in the eye and going, hey, you're human and I'm human. How are we doing with the whole human thing between you and me? Yeah, (laughs) And so... If you would prefer a different word to maintenance, that's terrific. Find the word that works for you. But what it's really inviting you to do is keep checking in on how you two are doing together. And is this the best possible way that you can be with each other and work with each other and bring out the best in each other and avoid the worst in each other? Because, and this kind of circles around to where we started, Caitlin, which is your success and your happiness are driven significantly by the quality of your working relationships. Work happens through people.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So be active about how you build and maintain those working relationships rather than passive for your sake and for their sake and for the work's sake.
0: Great. I think that's actually a really nice note to end on. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time today and talking with me about your new book, How to Work With Almost Anyone. It's been a pleasure.
2: It has been. Thank you, Caitlin.
0: Welcome to The bookend, End, where we end with books. Welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, Phoebe, what did you hear that was interesting to you in the talk with Michael?
1: I think one thing that's standing out for me is this idea of keystone conversations, how you can navigate the the difficult parts of any relationship by starting out saying, let's have a conversation about how to have the most effective relationship that we can have Michael gives three pointers for navigating these conversations. So he says, uh, don't nurture the wound in darkness, mm. as in speak out. Notice, is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't been said? So hold, hold the space. And finally, if, if there has been some wrongdoing, don't give a weasel apology. And I'm just wondering, Caitlin, in your own relationships, have there been moments where you've you've tried out these three things? You know, have you had to navigate these tricky conversations yourself?
0: Oh, my goodness. First of all, thank you for so nicely encapsulating those three points. And of course, who has not had to have a tricky conversation? Oh, my God. Although I would say my worst habit around those three things is nurturing the wound in darkness. Yes. Uh, I've gotten better at it in recent years, but I, I generally, my default setting was for a very long time to think, I'm resilient, I'm okay, I can handle this small hardship much better than whoever the other person I'm in relationship to can. I'll just deal with it. It's not a big deal. The thing is, it turns into a big deal when you nurture the wound in darkness. Yes. And that has been really rough for me in the past, but... In order to have a really vital relationship, you need to bring these things to light and you need to make them repairable. Mm. Um, And repair, as we talked about, repair isn't always something that just happens if you leave it alone. And I think that a lot of my relationships when I was younger, we would get to a point where there was a crack of some sort. And then I guess we would just mutually ignore it and let it slide. Um, but I don't have a lot of those relationships anymore. And mm-hmm. when I look at my oldest, deepest friendships, for example, I'm thinking of two people in particular right now. There have been fallings out for just usually really silly misunderstandings. But our friendships are deep and strong. And we there is mutual trust in each other's goodwill mm-hmm. because we had to go back and repair. Mm-hmm. And I think that much like, as I was saying in the talk with Michael, after you have a physical injury, you have to do some active repair to your body. Like you'll go to physical therapy. Maybe you rest yourself and then you also go to physical therapy and you also take up, I don't know, swimming to strengthen these muscles that need to be strengthened after a fall or something. Not that I'm speaking from personal experience. Um, (laughs) But active repair is really, really important. And um, I have had to do some of that.
1: I think the key word there is the the active part. You're right. And, and I just to tie it into the whole title of this, which is working relationships. I think that was the kind of light bulb moment for me in terms mm. of, yes, the relationship is always something that you're working mm. at and within and around. Yes, exactly. I love
0: that. He offers that that question, is there anything else that hasn't been said that needs to be said? Mm. And he says, you know, you can kind of implant these things subliminally so that it is easier and easier for someone to have the language to bring up things that do need to be said. Like, Mm -hmm. actually, you know what? Uh, Phoebe, there is something that needs to be
1: said here. Let's talk about it. Mm, regular and often, it becomes less scary. Yes, it? Yeah. exactly. Well, I'll certainly be taking that away with me. And I'm wondering if you have a book recommendation that I can also divey dip into. Oh my God, Queen of Segways. Yes, in
0: fact, I do. I have a shortcast actually <laughs> that I would love to recommend. For those of you who don't know, shortcasts are short, encapsulated, really powerful little um, key messages from longer podcast episodes. And this one is from former guests of Simplify, Rick and Forrest Hansen. It's Mm. a short cast of their Being Well podcast. You can find it on Blinkist. It is with Orin J. Sofer, and it gives some pointers on using NVC, Mm. nonviolent communication. Do you know what that is, Phoebe? Yes, I've, I've had a bit of practice and it's been awesome for my relationships. Yeah. Same, actually. So for everyone who is new to NBC, we definitely aren't. But it was developed by Marshall Rosenberg, who was an American psychologist. And it's all about building empathy and clearly expressing your needs while avoiding placing judgment on something that happened, which I think is always the hardest part of an argument. Right. Rather than judging and saying you did X and having this preconceived idea as to why it happened, you report like a camera on what occurred and you relate your feelings about it and the basic human need that's underneath the way that you feel and end it with a request. So it goes like this. There's kind of like, it's a little bit of a belabored equation, but it really boils down to when X happens, I feel Y and that impacts me in Z way. Would you be willing to A? So it's introducing the problem, um, the thing that you're feeling, or it's introducing the behavior. Problem is even judgmental language. Uh, The thing that you're feeling, the universal human need underneath it, And then making an ask of the other person. I have an example. Hmm. Phoebe. Yes. When you tell me that you saved me an apple for after lunch and you give it away before I get to eat it, I feel unimportant and hungry. (laughs) Would you be willing to save the apple for me and resist giving it away to hungrier looking colleagues earlier in the day?
1: <laughs> I did promise Caitlin an apple, <laughs> racked with guilt.
0: <laughs> you know what? I'm actually really full and I don't need it, but that's kind of how it
1: goes, right? Yeah. Is, so, yeah. is there a stage where that becomes part of your natural vocabulary? Because I think the thing I struggle with uh, when it comes to NBC is it, it feels clunky in my mouth. But, but do you find after practice it becomes more free-flowing?
0: I really have. I don't even really think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it becomes pretty natural to say, you know, when X happened, I felt in this certain way. And they put a big emphasis, Marshall Rosenberg puts a big emphasis on I statements. So you're saying what how you feel and what your experience is. So that gives the other person opportunity to come forward and express empathy. When you're accusing, notice I didn't say, Phoebe, you're a liar who doesn't keep her promises. Mm. I said, Phoebe, you promised me an apple. I felt hungry and sad because my apple wasn't there. And that gives the other person the opportunity to fill in that blank themselves so that you can come to some sort of Accord agreement at the end Mm. that doesn't involve anybody really pointing fingers or blaming or judging the other person. Mm. Mm. And I do think that it it becomes more natural with time and it doesn't have to be that strict formula Mm. every time either. It's more just like state what you've what you've observed, give an I statement about how you feel and what the impact is and then ask for something different.
1: Yeah, really nice. Uh, I've chosen something in a slightly similar vein. Yes. Uh, It's about establishing the kind of framework for good conversations. So this is A Blink uh, by Nancy Dreyfus and it's called Talk to Me Like I'm Someone You Love. (gasps) That just gave me chills. It's very sweet. It's very sweet. So firstly, we love the title. And then she also has really nice tips about how to navigate tricky conversations. And she calls these intervention phrases. So if you feel like a conversation is spiraling or you're not getting to where you want to be, she suggests things like, can we start again? Can you repeat what you're saying, but in a calmer tone, so I feel safer with you? Can we take a minute to start over and really listen to what each other is saying? So it's the, it's kind of the vocabulary to enter conflict zone.
0: Oh. Um,
1: which I think is helpful in, in terms of this kind of repair part is really of working helpful. relationships. Yeah. So check out The Blink. Perfect. What's it called again? It's called... Talk to me like I'm someone you love. Mm. The, the other final thing right. I thought is the guides with the Freemans, ah. the five R's on how to repair relationships. That's also worth Ooh, checking out.
0: Nice. So that's a, a guide in the Blinkist app with the Freemans, how to repair relationships. Um, for me, you'll look for the Being Well shortcast with Oren J. Sofer. And Phoebe had this wonderful talk to me like someone you love blink recommendation. So it's all in Blinkist. You can try it out for free, Um, seven day free trial. Go to Blinkist.com slash friends. Um, Enter the code bravery, B-R-A-V-E-R-Y. You can try it out for seven days and read all these things or listen to them. Um, Some of these things Phoebe and I have worked on or made. So um, yeah, check it out. And I guess my dear friend, I don't mind that you didn't save the apple. We're all good. (laughs) So Phoebe and I are gonna go have a nice um a nice chill talk. It will be Apple yes. Yeah. Well thank you anyway, for having me as a guest. Um, thank you for being a wonderful co-host. All right. That is it. Simplify is produced by me, Caitlin Schiller, Phoebe Macandrew, Benjamin Stoller in Absentia, uh Maria Levichik ben jackson and other invisible but helpful and crucial audio editors at blinkist ding okay check it out (laughs) ciao